Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. We are here to talk about this week's movie. We're here to talk about 2016's The Wailing. An, an, an honestly kind of spellbinding movie and something I'm so excited to get to talk about. It is, you know, this this kind of falls into the category of films that I'm like, I hope this this episode encourages people to go check it out. Um, so I'm, again, as always, I'm so excited to ask you, my dear friend, Ash, would you mind just laying it all out and explaining what is The Wailing about? The Wailing is a tale of photographs, small moments of joy, sorrow, confusion, or rage frozen like signs that mark the way between one person and another. These are the guideposts of trust and faith and understanding that bind us and hold us together. These signs are the material emergence of the intangible qualities that bridge and connect people even when, especially when, things become difficult. And I'm sorry, dear listeners, beyond this point I only have questions. The wailing has come to weigh heavy on my heart by finding doorways I had long since thought sealed. Their presence, this opening, is a testament to the power of art and the enduring nature of pain. But please, do not take my words as those of one who has abandoned hope, abandoned trust. For the presence of pain lets us know that a wound is still alive, and a wound that yet hurts is also one that may be yet healed. I wish there was more of me, more to share. But fresh pain seeps from me and I grow tired, like muscle and bone that move without their heart. Even though I sing a chorus of wailing, I hope for a moment of stillness. A moment in which we all become strong enough to bear this life, like a garden big enough for its flowering trees and coiling serpents alike. Join us as we discuss the wailing. Ooh, yes. Pew, pew, yeah. pew, pew. Yeah, completely undercut the emotional weight of that by making gun sound effects like I'm a Josh Whedon joke. Let's go. <laughs> let us let us begin then, um, as we always do, by uh, entering the, the the kind of haunted wood that we call the formalism zone. Zone, 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 zone. <laughs> I don't know why I went for like like uh mid 90s cnn news anchor intro sting this, there this, but... this is a formalism zone alert uh yes Bre- breaking uh, news <laughs> breaking news uh this is a this is certainly a movie but i think maybe the most immediate and obvious thing that we could talk about formally speaking is this is a long movie uh i i didn't know how long this was so honestly i i, I bought the dvd threw it in my dvd player fired up the projector started watching and Hours later, I I was just on on the a ride like I have not been on in quite some time. Um, yeah, like this is this is uh this is what two and a half maybe just over two and a half hours long. Um, and we've talked before on the show that we appreciate films which are. Uh, direct and concise, you know that tight ninety. That's what we like. Mm. So, so how do we how do we kind of like process this? How how do we how do we deal with the fact that we're dealing with a film that is, you know, just over two and a half hours long? 
Well, uh, I would I would open this by by uh, saying that recent life events have caused me to entirely reevaluate what long is in the context of a movie. <laughs> Uh, Mr. The Wailing, call me when your film is 400 times longer than it currently is. But what what I will say to that is, I, I think for me, like, you know, after coming out at the end of logistics, like, and having such like a honestly intimate encounter with cinema, right? Like having a movie literally playing every waking moment for three months straight, no breaks, mm-hmm. like, no days off, no no ruptures in the cinematic experience besides existence itself. Like merging the length of cinema with the length of living. Uh, I've come to reevaluate my approach to, to length in cinema. I no longer care how long a movie is. I, I really care what the movie is doing with its time. Why the movie is as long as it is. What is being played on screen? Why is it being played on screen? How am I absorbing it? Like, I, I think I would contrast this with, like, a lot of the length in MCU films, you know, a lot of the length in Disney, Disney's new uh, recent action adventure purchases. It, it's not really for the film itself. You know, it's not really telling a story. It's not really there to entertain us or to, I don't know, har- harrow and plow through the soul, render us capable of doing good, prepare us for death, the things that art are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's there to advertise other products. It's there to get you to buy, like, you know, the stuff that children's media has always wanted you to buy toys, but now it, it wants you to buy the subscription services. It wants you to buy into watching all the other programs, right? You, you, you now haven't, you haven't seen the movie until you've seen the show. And I think for The Wailing, you know, it's just, I didn't realize how long this movie was. I was afraid, I was angry, I was laughing, I was crying, and then it was over, and I looked at the time, and it was after midnight, and my, I was like, holy shit, where'd all the time go? I think the big thing is, is like, does, this, does, a, does a film feel like it's wasting your time? You know, that's, that's, that's the big thing. And a lot of the time, especially in contemporary cinema, it seems, and contemporary mainstream cinema, I should say, it seems that, like, you know, you come out of it and you go, yeah, it was fine, but it probably could have been like 20 or 30 minutes shorter. or I wouldn't really have noticed. Whereas this, like you, I was like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize it didn't, it didn't click with me just how long this film was until the end. And you realize you've been, you've been put through this kind of emotional ringer to try and, to try and like, just, it, 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 it holds your, your attention in such a way and is organized in such a way that it never feels like it's wasting your time. So I think that this is really important, right? Because something that this discourse pops up all the time, especially if you're terminally online, right? You see countless people talking about movies are too long. Movies aren't long enough. Did I get my value out of that movie? And, and I think that we, we, we need to have like a very like sober appraisal of what cinema is there for. Because one of the things that really struck me about watching logistics and watching movies, indeed, like The Wailing, you know, which isn't super long. It's just pretty long. It, it, there, there's something about that that resists the, the capitalist machinations of productivity. You know, like like if you if you have to carve, you know, three hours out of your day, that's three hours you expressly cannot be doing labor. And The Wailing isn't trying to sell you anything. Mm-hmm. The Wailing is trying to get you to feel something. The Wailing is so much closer to like, like, dear listener, have you ever just gone on a wonderful first date with someone and, and, and you're, you, you thought you were just going to meet up at a coffee shop for an hour and, and you know, feel the person out, see if you want to go for round two later. 
But like, then it's like, it's your fingers snap and it's 3 a.m. and you've had heartfelt conversations and the world just looks a little different. That's mm-hmm. the wailing, you know, like uh, Avengers Endgame is the same thing, but your fingers snap and it's three hours later. And all of a sudden you want to go to Target to buy Star Wars toys for some reason. <laughs> and, and I think this is what I mean when I when, when I say like a film is wasting my time. I mean, wasting in the sense of like a Victorian wasting disease. Mm hmm. You know, like because like if a film isn't wasting your time, if you just dislike it or if you find it boring or not funny or the action's not compelling, then is then it's just down to taste or perhaps craft or your own appraisal of art or your own enjoyment of things. That's that's separate entirely. You know, a movie can be very long and very terrible. <laughs> but this, if a movie this is, is true, if a movie is very long and and is wasting you, right? Like like I think I think so much about. Um, that, that that Tarkovsky quote, like, what is the purpose of cinema? It's to harrow and plow through the soul. It's to render one capable of doing good. It's to prepare one for death. You know, like, like, what is what is art doing if if not mulching you and and turning the the, the fallow earth of the human heart into something that can grow flowers? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's it's either doing that or it's it's making you buy Legos. <laughs> the, those those are the two options available. <laughs> oh oh dear oh dear well uh, i guess i guess maybe a good question to think about formally is not only this in in the context of length but also in what kind of film is this um because in a way this is this is kind of like a classic uh it's like a classic neo-noir this isn't this is a, it's a noir film right it's about it's about a detective trying to solve a problem that reveals mm-hmm. the world to kind of have a, a kind of like dark secret. And this is what connects noir and horror, because really the, the core of horror is that beneath the, the skin of the world, there is this kind of like dark void. There is this um, uh, unarticulated and inexplicable set of forces. And this is mm-hmm. this this meshes exactly with um in a, in a way that like horror is about trying to solve something that can't be solved right so no wonder it lends itself really well to like crime mm-hmm. uh i mean the kind of old gothic link would be to something like um jekyll and hyde you know yeah. which, is, which is about which is about a lawyer trying to solve who this strange person is that's just appeared in a friend's life and appears to be destroying their their, their life um what, what do you think about this, about this connection between uh, noir cinema and uh, horror cinema? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think these two genres are so many, so many genres kind of derive themselves from common elements. Right. And, and we and in certain respects, we can trace historic lineages back through the Gothic, of course. And I think there are there are also like deeper undercurrents, you know, like you, you can only court so much darkness and murder and mystery and intrigue before you slip into horror and horror likewise can can uh, can only get so imperceptible and sudden and shocking before people start wanting to find out what the mystery is Mm -hmm. yeah and like there's so much like like overlap and connection between these two genres and they're so beautifully married in the wailing and and it's such a such a wonderful modern adaptation and like my my favorite part of like a really good neo noir is like old school noir black and white, mm-hmm. right? 
like black and white out of necessity because that was the only film anyone could afford at the time. And like, you know, like to carry that darkness forward, right? Like that, that use of like depth and, and shade that, that, that goes on in a contemporary context when like color is the default, like the wailing, like on a formal level, like it, it balances those neo-noir elements just so well. Oh, it's exceptionally well shot. It has a really, really good use of light and shade, uh, you know, that is directly out of that cinematic tradition. Um, there's something else that I that I, I kind of wanted to bring up formally as well, which is like, in terms of this, the, the sort of filmic, the cinema style, the fil- filmic language that this is working with, um, there is a sort of fluidity to how this film is edited and put together that I think is really interesting um, in such a way that this film never feels like it's overly expositional. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of it, I think, comes down to its cross-cutting. And I, I, I guess I, I was just kind of curious to know what you what you thought about that. I, I th- the editing in this one... One of the difficulties you get when you kind of do this, like, from my admittedly uh, idiosyncratic and unique perspective, like, this is kind of like a mid-length film, right? <laughs> yes. It's, 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 not, it's not the crisp, tight 90 that my heart yearneth for, and it, and it's not the, like, unraveling mayhem of a film that is hundreds of hours long. It, and when you're in that when you're in that kind of zone, right, like, editing editing 90 minutes it is brisk, right? Like you're delivering something on a deadline with that. When you're in this three hour like patch, you really run the risk of, especially a film critic being able to go like, okay, like there's this 30 minute sequence that doesn't add anything to the plot. Doesn't move any of our characters for visually. It's not that interesting. We could have cut that out and the movie could have just been shorter. Yeah. yeah. Um, At no point in this movie do I feel that at, at no point in this movie am I like, okay, this is something that we could have just cut out to save time. It doesn't really build anything. Yeah. And I think so much of that comes down to a sustained pacing that goes throughout the whole thing. This movie, th- there aren't any, like, I, I was about to say there aren't any lulls, but there aren't any unintentional lulls. Yes. You know, I think, I think that's really yeah, important. On. I think that's really important that there is, there is real pacing and there is this real awareness of how do events move through time, um, which I think is really, really interesting. There's a kind of, there is a sort of fluidic nature to a lot of the cross-cutting and a lot of the editing because it'll cut from, what I really love is like it cuts from somebody telling someone a story, but you don't know it that that's what's happening until you see them revealed right at the end, right? So you, you get to see the entire story and then it immediately kind of like hard cuts to somebody going, oh, that's just complete nonsense. Why are you telling me this? Um, you have moments where characters have conversations, which then ends with them waking up as if from a nightmare. So I think there's I think there is a great deal of kind of complexity into how this thing is put together. Yeah, yeah like like this is if even if you're not into like the specific plot elements in the whaling. Right, like the possession movies, folk horror, neo-noir. Like if you want to kind of study longer length feature films from a formalist perspective, this is a great movie to kind of pick apart to see how it achieves such a clean pacing. Yeah, uh, and it means that all of the... I, I really do love the editing. I think the editing in this is so good because it means that you have 
editing as a means of character development and mm-hmm. simultaneously as a means of developing plots. And a lot of the time, those two things don't necessarily always function so closely hand in hand, right? So it's like uh, our police sergeant wakes up from a nightmare and not only have you had kind of plot advancement temporally and narratively, you also have character advancement because you have this person talking about how they've been having very strange dreams for a long time now. Mm-hmm. So I just think I just think it's cool that you have something, you have like a super technical aspect of the film actually adds all of these things to it in a way that maybe it would occasionally just focus on one. And I know, I know we don't like to put a lot of weight on like formal awards ceremonies because those are often not really reflective of the nature and quality and substance of art as much as they are reflective of kind of social political strata within Hollywood. And this isn't a Hollywood movie, of course, but within other, you know, film industries. But Kim Soon Min did win Best Editor like three times for this movie and yeah, well-deserved. I am, I'm not surprised by that in the slightest. I'm not surprised by that in the slightest. And people would go, oh, yeah. People might go, oh, yeah, but that's what editing is supposed to do. And I'm like, yes. But like here you get to see it working in such a kind of like carefully integrated way. Yeah, Absolutely. And and would you like to do some editing of our own and cut right to the discourse zone? <laughs> hey swing and a hit. Sometimes we don't need a segue. Sometimes we can just change topic. <laughs> some episodes we do have no internal division of the show and we just kind of fluidly slide through the entire discussion. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yes, let us let us enter the discourse zone. So let's let's kick things off uh, by by talking about religious horror. And as we this is your first episode, this is our, our new segment called Bible Versus with Horror Vanguard. <laughs> I mean, religious horror is a kind of huge and very complex field. So what are you what are your thoughts here? What are your thoughts on like what this film is is doing, what it's trying to do? Well, so the first thing we see after we, after we go through like, you know, kind of the you know, pre-roll stuff where we're thanking studios and showing their credits and et cetera and so forth. The first real bit of the movie, I guess I shouldn't say real because that stuff's also a real part of the movie and it does change how we read the film. Mm-hmm. But that that is, okay, that, that would take us back into the formalism zone and I'm not going there again. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the first thing, the first like bit of the, the, the film itself, right, uh, that we encounter is a Bible quote, a Bible verse. It's uh, Luke 24, uh, 35 through 39, uh, why not? Why not read it? Why not? Why not uh, lay it out for us? I'm glad you asked. I happen to have that up right here. <clears throat> I'm sorry. It was actually uh, Luke 24:37 through 39. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, "Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and feet. That is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have." Uh, yeah, so this is uh, this is uh, Christ immediately post resurrection, um, although not not the very first time. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Mary sees uh, Jesus first. There is the famous. There's a famous uh, phrase in Latin, which is "noli me tangia," which is what yep. Jesus, Jesus says to to Mary when uh, immediately post resurrection, which is "touch do not do not hold on to me, don't don't touch me." And there is this, and it sets up quite 
I think quite very very clearly and very explicitly the kind of thematic of the nature of horror that we're dealing with here, which is this question of what does it mean to see something and believe it to be true? That really sets up all of the important thematics of this, right? Like, especially like in addition to what you said, like it also sets up like the distinction between kind of like when we when we first meet our our protagonist, <laughs> I, I guess uh, the the policeman, um, the the father of the possessed girl, you know, our detective in this neo noir, uh, Jong Gu, he. Uh, is so dismissive of everyone around him who believes in kind of anything folkloric or metaphysical. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like like he's calling, you know, his, his, his colleague is talking about ghosts and spirits and, and he's like, don't be so ignorant. You know, let's 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 do work. Um, and like, you know, like that that passage from Luke really like speaks to that, like bridging of of this gap between a kind of. An, an ephemeral knowledge that resists this kind of like data-driven approach that modernity is built on with, you know, what happens when we do encounter these things in the physical? What happens when they do creep back into the bone? Yeah, precisely. Because it sets up a it sets up a dichotomy which doesn't which is this film basically tears apart, right? Which is the distinction mm-hmm. between spirit and flesh. Yep. And uh as this film points out, there's literally no reason why it, ghosts even wouldn't have bodies there's a there's a great line from uh, a character that we're going to talk about more detail the shaman who says that not not everything that walks uh and talks and breathes is alive mm-hmm. you know it, and there's also the implication that like a lot of people a lot of people are ghosts who maybe don't even know it which i think is a very it's a really kind of interesting question oh i i completely completely agree with that you know like like it's so hauntological to, to approach this movie from the perspective of like, okay, a lot of people have, have died. Our, our futures are dead. And we just, we're just not fully cognizant of those realities yet. Yeah. What does it mean? What does it mean to live as a ghost? Mm-hmm. Isn't, isn't that a kind of just uh, being cursed? And so much of that space in this movie is about being able to let go. You know, like be, being able to let go of everything from your preconceived notions about other people and the world and your place in history to being able to let go of the parts of you that are gone yes. in very meaningful, very concrete ways. And the consequences for not kind of developing that ability, that inner strength it takes to release something that is lost to you. Yeah, this is this is exactly the problem that he has, right? This this seemingly insoluble problem of uh you know faith versus uh rationality but really it's about two two modes of epistemology in this film right this idea of like you can detect your way to to the truth or truth comes by some kind of like terrifying revelation of the 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 Mm -hmm. divine the divine otherness of existence um and really both work in concert to bring the protagonist to you know, the point where you kind of see the tragic flaw in his character. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, it would be super easy to read this in sort of very reductive terms as like, a, oh, it's about faith versus reason. But really it's about how both of those things are often mutually co-constitutive. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. The the conflict that that our you know detective goes through in the course of this movie is his internal struggle to reconcile the position of those two things in, in both the material world around him as his daughter gets sicker and he can't solve this murder and it's jeopardizing his career as well as in his own heart. Yeah, is is the world comprehensible? You know, that's the act of faith that investigation is based upon. Right. Mm-hmm. This idea that you can understand the world if you ask the right questions, if you talk to the right people, you know, if you uh, assess the, uh, the, the, the data that you gather in the right kind of positivistic way, you can make sense of stuff. That's the that's the, that's the that's the kind of wager of deduction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think, that, you know, to build off of what you were saying, there, there's another very simple, almost a trap to fall into with this film. And that's to say that. Oh, our, our detective is a man without faith. And yeah. that's that's his flaw. That's the cross he bears in this movie is that he doesn't have faith. And therefore, he falls into this pit, you know, spiritually speaking and throughout the course of the movie. Right. But he has an extreme amount of faith. He has so much faith in his position in society as a, dete- a detective, what police work is supposed to accomplish. Yeah. Right. His his belief in in a very grounded and material sense of reality. He has an extreme unshaking faith in these things that even when he sees material evidence to the contrary, he does not let go of his faith. So the, uh, the, the problem yeah. isn't quite as simple as like, oh, it's it's an absence of faith. But in fact, it's kind of a malformation of and a misunderstanding of what faith even is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think you, you put it really well. I think um, you. Which leads us to the, the, the question of possession. I was, I'm really sorry to start laughing, but I was about to say it's almost as if I'm possessed. Hey, hey, you see what he's doing here, folks? You see what he's doing? Speaking, speaking of possession, you can go to patreon.com slash horror There it is. There it is. To the possession that is subscribing to our Patreon to get early access to our episodes because they're often about possessions. Uh, Ooh, that was that was oof. rough, but you know what? We're leaving it in. We're not. We're not. I'm not going to do that again. I think that's you know good enough counts here. <laughs> you know what? I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. That that was the spirit leaving me. By the way, that that was that was the the eloquence. Of, of my of my oration just departing my soul as possession movies go uh, where do we think this one kind of fits um so I was trying to find a lot of production details about this film and I, I just couldn't encounter them I wanted to see what the onset experience was like for the child actress who who plays the uh, so the, the policeman has a daughter who's possessed by a demon. Um, her, her name is Hyojin, um, and and her possession is horrific. It's, you know, for 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 a child actor, she's phenomenal. Honestly, all of the performances in this in this are are really so talented, but she is unbelievable. It reminded me of Reagan from Exorcist, like it was that good. You know, yeah, yeah. It was that it was that visceral. It was that shaking. The presence was that immediate. You know, like it, 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 it looked and sounded and felt like a child in in incredible pain and agony and darkness. You know, it was it was horrifying and and just tear jerking and so abyssal and like 
That was achieved in The Exorcist by way of permanently damaging and torturing a child. I don't know how that was achieved in The Wailing, but, you know, perhaps similar things were done. Maybe they weren't. I legitimately do not know. Yeah. Um, but it was just like the, the performance of, of that child actor was just stunning. Um, there, there is an important distinction, though, that I think we should point out in terms of the kind of possessions, right? The, the point of the exorcist is that the exorcism is successful. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a set ritual. There's a set liturgical practice. You know, that's what the two priests are there to do. And it has consequences, yeah. but it's successful. It works. Um, and of course, uh, the wailing, it is spectacularly non-successful. And it's non it 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 fails. There is a there's an incredible sequence where they, they call for a local shaman. Um so this is it's it's very easy, I think, and and kind of um very tempting to think about possession in terms of very um uh, Christian cosmology, you know, that's how it often appears in horror. But there is this really interesting uh, multiplicity happening in this film where you it's drawing off, off um, Catholicism, uh, but it's also drawing off a lot of uh, the very old folk religion or folk magical practices in, in Korea. Um, so there is a shaman who comes to perform an exorcism ceremony um, and it, doesn't work and it doesn't work not because of a kind of lack of faith um but because it's the the exorcism is almost just as traumatic as the possession itself yeah so okay um first off before i go any further in this discussion uh formal apology to all south korean listeners for my pronunciation of every single name in in this episode, uh, just wanted to put that out there before saying um, Il Guang, who is the shaman that we're talking about, is such an amazing character. Um, I, I I loved his on screen presence. There, there's this kind of archetype of of the exorcist who's in it for the money, but is also legitimately capable of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know he's he's not a charlatan or a grifter. He is like 100 percent a real bona fide shaman. Um, but nevertheless, like he needs the coin, you know, he's got to get paid for his work. And like, as a fellow freelancer who, who also works for <laughs> unspeakable demons, I, I respect the hustle, sir. But no, like, I, I really love how all these things are kind of like pitted against each other. Right. Because through the course of the movie, we find out that the shaman is, is actually in league with the demon, you know, you know, he's, he's, you know, not actually on on the side of good per se or even if he's not on the league of the demon he's being manipulated by the demon you know and like we'll, we'll talk about the woman in white later like there there are so many like the, it's not that the detective finds out that a demon is possessing his daughter and he has to go confront a singular demon it's that a door opens up and and he realizes that this world of spirits and demons and shamans and folk beliefs and practices and kind of like beings and knowledges and ways of knowing that are just beyond anything he's ever considered all of this is real you know yes, like, yeah, like preci- he, he stands precisely. on an immense precipice Pre- precisely I, I, at one point in the film literally and it's like this is exactly what i meant when i was talking about like the the kind of reductionist reading would frame this as kind of reason versus faith but really this is about kind of like epistemological crisis Right. Mm. There isn't oh, yeah. there, mm. there isn't one enemy. There isn't one like 
oh, how do we, how do you solve the crime? The whole point of the crime is you find the guilty person, right? That, that's, that's, that has a very, on a kind of like philosophical level, there's a very strict view of like agency then. What does it mean to act in the world, right? It means you can find the one person who did the one thing that was wrong. But like the whole point of this film is that like that entire foundation just collapses into this sort of web of, of, of kind of cosmic paranoia. And, and to me, the, this reflects, and not to reduce it, right? Because this can't be pinned down to like anything so singular, right? But this, one of the problems with policing and, and uh, you know, that's just such a poor way to phrase this, me from five seconds ago. One of the many horrific and twisting problems of policing is that the problems policing on its face says it's correcting like oh we're gonna we're gonna prevent crime by putting criminals in prison right C- crime does not arise in the heart of man through avarice and and through through the want of a bigger flat screen tv or whatever the object of the crime may be it arises from from broken material and social conditions Yes. You know, it's 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 not a it's not a darkness in our hearts that we must grapple with. It's it's a corruption and flaw in our social systems. And this this movie kind of plays with that. It goes, okay, well, you're trying to detect who's doing these murders, but what if there's an entire system that your whole life you've been completely unaware of the functioning of that's actually driving so much of what you're trying to fight against? Yeah, uh, the the kind of cosmological or, or theological or spiritual counterpoint to that kind of system of policing or the discourse of policing is this question of evil, right? So, mm-hmm. so uh, the, the, the classic one is like, is, is evil something that people can choose to do or is evil in fact something which represents a kind of negativity of being? And that, that's the big debate, you know, is there, is, there, is there just a kind of like a guy somewhere who's doing these murders uh, because of his devotion to a demon? Or is there this kind of network of, of violence that emerges into the world through through a negation of life itself? Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. what the film leans towards. But the problem is that isn't a problem that a policeman is kind of metaphysically equipped to solve. And it's not a surprise that they only that the persons, the people who get kind of closest to really understanding what's going on, are the shaman and the, the trainee priest. Yeah. Absolutely. The only people who are actually, you know, players, real players in the solving of these crimes are a ghost woman, a shaman in league with a demon and, and a, you know, a beginner, junior level starter priest. Yeah. Uh, level one. Uh, <laughs> level one. Su- super underleveled. Doesn't have any good gear yet. Just, just started his Elden Ring playthrough on a faith build. He is fundamentally unprepared yeah, for this he, conflict. He, he, he's going to need to put some, he's going to need to do serious grinding. <laughs> oh dear. The tree sentinel is going to treat him so poorly. <laughs> Um, oh, but we digress. Uh, we, would, you, would you like to? Oh, go on, go on, go on. We should talk about we should talk about the kind of network though that's at play here, which a lot of it revolves around um, a character who is referred to as the Japanese man, who has mm-hmm. come who has come to the village, um, and who right at the end is revealed to be um, either possessed or a demon. It's it's a little ambiguous, but I I would lean more towards the second one. 
Um, what what do you think about this character? So, so this is really interesting to me on, on so many levels, right? Because, because the movie is a little gothically appropriate to its gothic context as, as both horror and noir vague about whether the uh, Jap- in the movie he's only known as the Japanese stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not he's a demon, whether he's fighting the demon, what's going on with him. Is the demon just taking his form because the demon can? Mm-hmm. You, you know, and it's like, and again, this this speaks to like there 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 is probably a system of rules that govern this space, but it's like so occult in both a literal and a metaphysical sense to what we've come to expect as traceable and knowable rules that that it throws us for a loop. And of course, like the first thing that jumps to mind is political tensions between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Yes, right. Like J- Japan colonized the Korean Peninsula as as part of world war ii and then in the 50s uh, the korean peninsula was bifurcated yeah by by forces from the soviet union and forces from the united states right like and, and japan played a role in that you know like is and then there's there's a history that extends for hundreds of years before that between these peoples so it's you, you know like that's of course the immediate you know cultural events that are weighing heavily on the mind here but there's like a depth to this that that like of course they're going to single this man out as as the the kind of what could be an agent of evil in their village like of course there's going to be these tensions and these political tensions that come to play here yes absolutely um and i think as as with all kind of like um non-anglophone horror cinema there's going to be a lot that we that we just don't pick up on you know we don't necessarily have the 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 kind of historical, linguistic, and, and social knowledge to really understand all the kind of nuances. But the amazing thing about this film is that that's not necessary. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think you're completely right. That absolutely feeds into um, what's going on here. The, the, this idea of um, suspicion and, and, and like outright hostility towards someone Japanese in a, in a very insular Korean community. Um and it shows the way, again, I, I, I think that this terminology of paranoia is really useful for explicating like blame becomes diffuse, right? A lot of, a lot of the exposition in this um, film is delivered as kind of story, mm-hmm. right? It isn't like a direct recounting of like person A says B to person C, which leads to D. It's like, well, did you hear? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about what the stranger did? Right. So it's mm-hmm. it it diffuses kind of like blame into something much more nebulous, which leads to a lot more paranoia, it leads to a lot more violence. Oh, absolutely. There's something almost epistolary about how this film tells its story. Yeah. Classic, right? classic Gothic tradition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's word of mouth. It's from person to person. And there are so many moments where they could like capture material evidence Mm-hmm. You, you know, like so so at the Japanese stranger, he, he lives in a hut in the woods and in his hut, he has a very satanic looking shrine. It's got a bunch of goat skulls and, and dead chickens and blood everywhere. It's very spooky. It's so edge. It's like it's like every edgy teenager. <laughs> and like, like, of course, when, 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 when I saw that, I'm like, OK, like there's a lot of there's a lot of like eye catching dark stuff here. But it, is it necessarily evil? Is he just doing something you know, like surgery, you know, medical surgery at your local hospital could be considered a dark practice if you phrase it the wrong way. 
you're, you're, you're gutting a man and tearing out his organs and replacing them with the organs of a stranger and then hoping he lives or you're doing a heart transplant, you know, yeah. like, and so like, okay, looking at this, like, okay, is it going to be, and it turns out that's a twist at the end, right? Because there, there's some intimation that the Japanese stranger is distinct from the demon and is trying to fight the demon. Uh, yes, which comes out in the in the shaman's exorcism scene, where you have um, it cross cuts between a shaman dancing around, um, accompanied by this kind of pounding soundtrack, uh, and cross cuts to this the Japanese stranger in this little kind of occult uh, old altar. Um, both, both undergoing some kind of magical ritual, which involves a lot of animal sacrifice. So, like, that's there. There is there is something to this. This idea of like materiality doesn't really matter when you get a suspicion in your hand, right? Yes, and th- that's exactly what I was building towards. There are so many moments where, like, like our, our detectives find the Japanese stranger's room full of pictures of these murdered victims and artifacts taken from them right pieces of their clothing and accessories and things like that and and that that right there is enough material evidence to close the book on the case and put him away for life you know you take a box of that stuff back you take him back with you and you say hey chief look what we found but they don't you know they're overcome mm-hmm. right they're, they're they're overcome in that moment and are incapable of of doing what needs to be done to fulfill their own like belief system right to fulfill their faith and their function as detectives Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, because this is this is the whole this is the whole point, right? The, the the function of the police in this is simply to kind of like patrol the perimeters of the in group of the of the of the town itself. You know, it, how does it open? It opens with our uh, protagonist being told somebody's been killed, but we already know exactly who it is, right? There is no mystery of like, oh, who's the victim? Oh, it's the it's the ginseng farmer um uh, his, his wife's died and of course it turns out the entire family's been killed so it's like we're in this space where everybody knows everybody but there's no real kind of trust yeah yeah like 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 everyone is so fundamentally isolated from each other and and even even from their friends and their family and the people they ostensibly should know and that that speaks to like there's so many layers of knowing in, in this film, there are so many ways of kind of retrieving information from the world around us. And one of those is friendship and intimacy, you know, you know and like, like that is underdeveloped by our protagonist, right? Like his, his kind of intimate connection to his friends and his family is, is so stifled for the sake of his career as a detective. Like, like the, the first scene where we really get to meet him, he's, he's trying to leave the house without having breakfast because his work is so important and he needs to go work and be a detective and he, he clearly, you know, is established to, he values detecting more than he values the connection he has with the people he lives with. And of course, this is driven home by the fact that his boss thinks he's a bumbling idiot. Like, you know, <laughs> he's like, he's like, you know, he, 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 he's basically, he stands in the rain and falls down a lot, you know, and, but he mm-hmm. takes himself so incredibly seriously. He's constantly telling his daughter, you know, daddy's a policeman, daddy's going to fix it. But it's like daddy can't do anything <laughs> without yeah, messing he, up. He's an oaf. <laughs> you know, he just gets spooked and trips a lot. You know, he's the foil. Like th- this is a really dark and painful movie in so many respects, but it has killer comedic timing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he's he's a deeply he's often deeply unlikable. You know, and it oh, just yeah. drives home this truth that like protagonists don't have to be likable, but they do have to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And even despite all of his terrible decisions, like he is an interesting character. Right. So so do you do you want to talk more about kind of photography, which is very formal which is, which is a very prominent feature of this movie? No, this is this is a really good point um, that kind of chimes with what you were talking about earlier, right? Um, gathering material evidence. And the big thing that they find when they go into the Japanese strangers, you know, uh, weird, edgy, occult, broom cupboard. The big thing they find, apart from uh, like the Burzum albums, is a load <laughs> a load of photographs, and it's, uh, it's photographs of all of all of the victims. In fact, many, many more than get. Um, kind of revealed in the course of the film um there is there is there's something to the act of picturing the act of taking a picture is is in a sense the act of controlling time right it's yes it's it's about taking taking an aspect of usually someone and fixing it almost for eternity it's like it's, is it is it kind of preserving something or is it trapping something? You know, that's that's the kind of like metaphysics of photography, right? What are you doing when you take a picture of someone? When you take a picture of someone as a, as the victim of, of violence, what does it do to them? And I think that raises some super complicated ethical questions, right? And right at the end, what does what does he do? He pulls out another camera, taking a picture of the the terrified young priest, and it just made me think of the way in which. You know, it used to be that um, there was the kind of rumor that that uh, people thought the camera could steal your soul. And I'm sort of like, well, in a way, there is a degree of truth to that, right? Yeah. Like one of the interesting ha- things that happens to you after your photography is taken of you is you become an object of art. And and you know, something I've talked about a lot on the show is all art is inherently Frankensteinian. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah. second you create art you have given life to something that now lives beyond you it yeah. has an agency of its own it has a will of its own and it can find life far outside of what you ever hoped or thought or wished for it and when your picture is taken now like like we see this today in a really dark way right like we, we see this today and like every every time you see a ring doorbell camera viral video yep. of of like a, a postal worker tripping or like doing a silly dance in front of a camera, like that—that that is what we're talking about. That is these people's souls being stolen, right? There, there, there's there are evil machinations at work that use you know the the technology of the camera and the photograph and the moving picture to bind us. Yeah, you will be that forever as well, right? You mm-hmm. know those those videos of you know, uh, I I really really like utterly loathe the fondness for kind of like public freak out videos yes because it's like that that's what you're making that person you're making them that forever and you're doing that to them because you think it's funny there's a kind of sadism to that kind of photography right and there's there's a hubris too like i because i also loathe that kind of humor i really don't like the the oh look at this look at this picture of this this guy i saw at a walmart you know 
Because yeah. like no matter what is happening to that person in that moment, it, the only reason that wasn't you on the other side of the camera was nothing more than luck. Yeah, you got lucky, right? One day. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah one day. One day the tables are going to turn and you better just, there's nothing you can do outside of praying that someone doesn't have a camera pointed at you when you're like, you, when you trip awkwardly or you spill your soda and it looks like you wet yourself or something like like any of a number of silly things that we could see go viral and yeah. like I, I, this this ties into kind of broader issues too right because like you know recently it's come out that like police can literally ask ring for access to your doorbell camera without any kind of warrant without informing you at all they can just have it yeah and amazon have said yeah we just give it to them all the time yeah they just give it away and then, like, you know, here here in Chicago and in many other cities, there are programs where the city will give you smart surveillance technology, like a ring doorbell camera, if you give the express uh, give the police your express consent for them to monitor from it whenever they'd like and to have access to all of your recorded, uh, all the media that gets recorded on that camera. Yeah. 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 It's, you, you know, it, it, the incentivized panopticon. Ab- absolutely right like like the, the one of the biggest shifts in, in the last several decades is that we've just willingly absorbed our own surveillance mm-hmm. you know like p- part of the function of making this stuff performance right part of the function of like we're, we're now kind of a little inured to being recorded all the time you know because so many people share videos of people at their, at their worst moments tripping in public or a horrible breakup that happens in the cafeteria or all this all this stuff it, it, it makes us kind of naturalize and accept the fact that we're being surveilled 24 mm-hmm. seven. And it's not, it's not just like terrible joke meme reposting accounts that have access to this stuff. Yeah. This this idea of like, um, that turning the photograph is about turning the subject into an object, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and turning them into a kind of memento, um, but in a way it's also from, from our kind of demonic characters, it's sort of like, well, this is a revelation of what people truly are. Mm-hmm. You know, because the right at the end, so the young priest goes back to the to the Japanese stranger and says, you know, who who are you? What's your what's your real face? Who are you really? Mm-hmm. And he says, you already know. You already know who I am. And it's like, well, t- t- and he takes a picture of the young priest. It's like, well, this is your real face. You know, this is this is who you truly are underneath it all, right? Mm-hmm. Then and that's the kind of horror of the photograph. Like you get, you get trapped and kind of t- literally turned into an object, but you are also supposedly being shown the kind of truth of yourself. There's there's a really uncomfortable and intimate exposure that happens during filmic exposure. Yes, yes, I completely agree. Um, and and with that, with that little. Uh, conversation out of the way would you like to talk about fishing and comedy <laughs> there, there is there is some interesting kind of physical comedy in this are two the two main police officers that we spend a lot of time with spend a lot of time falling down um mm-hmm. uh our protagonist gets gets uh beaten up by uh two women which is played as a joke um mm-hmm. and then there is this there and and, and i'm sort of like some people might think it's kind of quite tonally inconsistent, but in a way, I think it it rounds out the character really well, and you get to understand just how deeply flawed this character truly is. And, and I think it also opens up 
a, a little bit of empathy, right? Because he's also the victim of circumstance to, to some respect. And that lets, at least from my viewing experience, look inward and be like, oh, okay, like, I too About, am often yeah. the victim of circumstance. And therefore, there are ways in which I am connected to this guy that are uncomfortable for me. Let's explore this. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and exactly. So, um, my just just a little side note. My favorite bit of kind of boobery and visual comedy is is the police are chasing this guy, and he winds up like they they, they wind up really messing it up, and he like falls down the side of a hill. Yeah, and and he's like get, getting up, and he's dusting himself off, and and he's like, "Oh, you detectives, your career is over. I'm gonna get in touch with your superiors. You're fired. This is it for you." And he starts walking away, and he gets struck by lightning immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so. It's timed so well. It's amazing. It's 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 very like there's almost this Greek tragedy quality to this, right? It's the, they're in the hands of these hubristic gods. Yes, exactly, exactly. One thing I did want to touch on really quick as we start to wind towards the end of this film is kind of like the psychedelic discourse and and the psilocybin yes. commentary that pops up in this. Um, because initially, right when they when they get the suspect for the first murders that happened. They're like, oh, we found a bunch of dried mushrooms in his house, and you know, he 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 must have been eating them. And you know, those mushrooms they make you go, they make you go crazy, and they make you do all kinds of stuff, you know. So it's just that, you know, like case closed. Yeah, that's moving on. yeah, case closed. Uh, had a bad trip. It's fine. We don't need to think about this anymore. And then like we get this exchange between the two detectives, and and one of them is like, oh, you mean you you never you never messed around with that stuff when 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 you were a teenager. And, and our, our protagonist is like, no, never. Why, why would I ever cr- cross those lines and do those things? And, and it kind of speaks to like, he, he's missing all of this experiential knowledge. He's, he's cut himself off from all these ways of knowing. And, and, and in so many ways, like that defines his character. A, a, willing, a willingness to abstain from knowing the world marks so much ab- about him and damns so much about his character. Yes, that, I think that's very true. Um. Or an inability to kind of like deal with that that nature of reality, deal to deal with the, that aspect to how the world can be organized and experienced, right? And and especially like this this, this drive to immediately instantiate psilocybin as something where like oh you do it you do it once or you do it too much and now you're like it's it's like all those myths you hear where you do psychedelics too many times and now you're legally insane whatever that means yeah yeah, yeah. and and like it, it's it's a way to give these things capitalistic frameworks it's a it's a way to make sure it, it's like it's like this um you know popular science approach to things where, where they're no longer about breaking out of, of the well-worn path that your mind travels in and encountering reality in new ways. They're about microdosing to fulfill the Protestant work ethic. Yes. And, and in so many ways, that little conversation they have plays into other parts of this. Cause of course these things are evil and bad and they should be criminalized, you know, so subtext, they, they mess with productivity too much. Yes. And you can't have that, you know, that's, that's just, that's just, uh, insane. What would happen to all of these people that we need to kind of like grow our ginseng for us? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that 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 again, like it just speaks to these thematics and these ways of knowings in the movie. Like all of all of these, like it's it's capitalist realism rearing its head again. All of these folk ways, all of these all of these types of knowledges 
lost, cut off because they don't fit into capitalistic frameworks. They're only resurfacing in ways in which they do fit into those frameworks. Mm-hmm. They're defanged and tamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a final aspect to this, uh, to mm-hmm. our to our protagonist that I think we should talk about, which is that, um, which is the relationship between um, uh, between uh, John Gu and his family. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's he's a kind of like very traditional patriarch, um, like a kind of emotionally distant, obsessed with work and his position, his respectability. You know, his daughter appears at the precinct to kind of get him some, get him some clean clothes because he's, you know, fallen over on his ass again and he's like he's covered in filth, <laughs> and he's like embarrassed at, at, at her seeing his moment of vulnerability. Right there is this there is this kind of really interesting critique of the connection is made quite clearly, I think, between his massive shortcomings as as a father uh, and his desperate clinging on to patriarchal and legal authority i don't want to always be this gothic studies guy but this is the castle of otranto he's manfred yeah yeah he's this this impotent toothless tyrant patriarch who who is desperately clinging to, to family and lineage because it is it is a vehicle for his own identity as as the brave protector and the proud patriarch the policeman you know that will save, swoop in and save the day for the women in his lives, and it, and it's that it's that hubris that's his downfall. His his curse isn't so much the the, the magic and the demons and the ghosts. His, his curse is his inability to look inward. Yes, exactly. That's that's uh, I I call this like uh, his, 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 I borrow the term from Greek tragedy, hamartia. Right? His his mm-hmm. his tragic flaw is that he's a policeman, and that's that's all he allows himself to be. Um. Right at the end, he's told not to go back uh, into his house. There's a trap waiting for the demon uh, that he has to wait until the, the cockerel crows three times, which again is another reference to scripture. But like mm-hmm. he, he, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a police officer. He has no trust. He has no um, mechanism by which he can make sense of the world outside of those terms, outside of the, the patriarchal system of the law. Um, and that's that's what ends in disaster cops will always get you killed <laughs> and like especially at the end too right so there's a character that reoccurs at the whole movie called the woman in white right uh, a folkloric ghost in, in a spirit and for so much of the movie we're we're to consider her a being of evil but it turns out it turns out towards the end that she's actually trying to stop the demon and save the day and she's she's kind of this angelic protector figure and like what's interesting in that, in that final encounter between her and the policeman, right? The spirit is is like, hey, like you you have to wait un, until the cock crows three times, and then you can go home because then the trap will have worked and the demon will have been stopped, you know. And like he he refuses to believe it, and he sees on her person, right? She has like clothing and artifacts from all of the people that have been killed by the demon, and like he makes the assumption that she's tricking him and that she's got these objects from the murders because she is the murderer. When, when in actuality, that's a betrayal of his own identity as a detective, you know, like he, he's a bad detective. He doesn't do any detecting in, in that moment. He spots these things. He jumps to a conclusion when he's already like way out of his depth and should be able to recognize that. And instead of trying to suss out, 
I kept thinking of like, what would Jean-Luc Picard have done <laughs> in that moment? Because Picard, Picard for me is like, he's such a good detective character, even when he's not playing the detective on, on the holodeck. Mm-hmm. But like, he's, he's got that sensibility where it's like, oh, okay, he's got, he's, this ghost has my daughter's hairpin. But maybe that doesn't mean she's evil. Maybe there's something more going on here. Mm-hmm. And like our protagonist never gets that far. Our protagonist just, you know, he's he's always like being carried away by these whims and running to his doom. Yeah, hugely impulsive, right? Hugely impulsive because like any because the demonic is a threat to the kind of authority of the, the capital F father, right? So mm-hmm. that has to be resisted. That authority has to be violently reinscribed. Um, but it's it can never be secured entirely. You always end up kind of running back into your into your own nature, which is what is which is why there's a kind of tragedy to the the ending is so inevitable, right? It, it there's this mm-hmm. error. It, there's it's it's inevitable when there's still I think like forty five minutes to go. You'll be watching it and you go, and if you're really honest with yourself, you'll go, I know how this is going to end. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a foregone conclusion very quickly. And a lot of this relies on like so many like classic gothic elements and it uses them so effectively and it engages with them so well. You have like you have our Manfred style, you know, t- tyrannical patriarch who's just completely off the rails through the course of this movie. You have the, these competing masculine forces that, that that he just can't countenance in the slightest. And you have you know, a la Dracula and so many other things, a, a woman who's completely solved everything, figured it all out, has a plan in place and is executing it. But all, all of these, all of these people who are so beholden to their own patriarchy, they're, they're just, just ruining their own lives over this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a lesson uh, in here somewhere. Uh, do you, do you have any, any final thoughts, any final thoughts that you'd like to, to I, I think th- I really think this wraps it up. I think this has been a great conversation on an absolutely stunning movie. Uh, honestly, I I feel like we we maybe glossed over that in the in the formalism zone, but this is this is an incredibly well put together film. Uh, it's it's it is funny. It's it's gross. It manages to be scary. It's and it's dealing with such interesting ideas, but never in a simplistic way. And I would love I would love 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 for more people to watch it. Um, but yeah we'll, we'll wrap it there we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky